You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. We have got to get moving on the next leg of this road trip. If you were with us last week, we started a new series called Summer Road Trip, where we are tracking along with the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts as he travels 10,000 miles through the Mediterranean world. It's going to take us all summer, um, and as you may have realized last week, some longer sermons to get to the end of this. So uh, just, just hang in there with me. But so we've got to get moving. Do you, do you have what you need to get started on the road trip today? You have uh, something to drink, water, coffee, in hand. You, you have something to entertain yourself in the car. Have you gone potty? Have you gone potty? Now is the time before we get too far into this sermon. Okay, sorry. I have young kids. These are the boxes you have to check, okay? Acts chapter 13 is where we're at. If you have a, a physical copy of the Bible, Acts chapter 13, if you're in the Bible app, You're going to see a bunch of scriptures right there because we're going to go through all of it. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. It says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. So a bunch of places you've probably never heard of. So we've got maps, lots of maps in this series to help you understand where we are at, right? So uh, last week... We, we started over in Antioch, uh, right there just north of it, where it says Syria. So we're in another Antioch. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is a different Antioch. We came through Cyprus, the little island there. Uh, so if you're following the yellow arrows, right? Um, so they went through all the way through Cyprus. Now they've gone up to Perga, still modern-day Turkey. But now they've gone up to Perga all the way to Antioch. Um, And Antioch, again, may sound familiar because the town last week where we started this whole thing was called Antioch. But this is a different place. Uh, It's like the town named Springfield. Do you know how many Springfields there are in the United States? I looked it up. 34. There are 34 Springfields. 35 if you count the Simpsons. Okay. Um, We've got Salem. Did you know that we're not the only state with Salem? I mean, we're not that special. There are, we're not even the most well-known Salem, and it's our capital. Like, that's what's bad about it, okay? So not unusual to have places named the same thing, especially when the custom in the ancient Near Eastern first century world was for conquerors and rulers to name places after themselves. So this guy named Seleucid Antiochus really liked himself some Seleucid Antiochus, uh, and one town would not do. So you've got two different Antiochs here, both named after him and his dad, Um, this one's different than the Antioch we started with. Because if you notice, it's not a port city. It's a little more inland. So it's going to have a little bit of a different culture, a little more rural, having to go through like forests and past lakes, through the Taurus Mountains, high elevation. Uh, Pisidian Antioch sits at 3,600 feet above sea level. So for like comparison's sake, I looked it up, Sisters, which is where I'm going to be next week. 
uh, for a bit is, is 3,100 square feet, or uh, <laughs> 3,100 feet above sea level. That would be a small town. Uh, so kind of like that, right? Going through, imagine going over the pass and then coming down and still being kind of high, right? That's kind of where we are. So slightly different culture, slightly different topography, but same Greco-Roman culture, right? So think Greek gods and all that you know about that and uh, politics and uh, way of life and culture. Um, and there's a big event that happens, this is why I stopped, in those two sentences that we read. It's, it's a big event and it's captured in just a tiny little sentence. It says, John leaves, right? John leaves. There's three guys. There's, there's Paul, Barnabas, and John, or John Mark, as he's sometimes known. John quits. They get to Perga and he gets on a boat and heads the opposite direction and he goes back home to Jerusalem all the way down here at the bottom of the map. Now, we don't know exactly why. The Bible doesn't tell us, but clearly they had some kind of disagreement. They got into some kind of conflict or fight because in a few chapters later, we'll see uh, Barnabas wants to give him another chance. Like, hey, let's bring John, you know, with us on the second journey. And Paul's like, no, not going to happen. He's not getting on my boat. Um, quite a rift in their relationship. And so this is probably a good time to just remind us that, yes, this is the word of God that we're studying, but it it's about real human beings, right? With real personalities and real conflict and real sin that's at the root of conflict, right? Paul is an incredible missionary. I mean, wrote most of our New Testament, but he's still a human being. Like he is still an imperfect man in need of God's grace and he makes mistakes and probably said things he didn't mean. And my guess is so did John Mark. And, and their relationship is rocky here, and, and just like us, have you, ever, have you ever gone on a road trip or a vacation and thought, this is gonna be the best time of our lives? The, you've got the itinerary, right? We're gonna, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. The kids are all gonna get along. They're gonna thank us for taking them. They're gonna pay us at the end of this. They are gonna pay us in Thanksgiving. And then you get like 10 miles down the road, and you're like, what are we doing? This is, this is terrible. Turn around. I want to do this. Don't make me turn around, right? That is, that is Paul here. That, that is John Mark. Like, there's, there's conflict, and they've got to work through it. This is not a fairy tale, okay? This is real life, and we're going to see every stop we visit has drama and problems. Sometimes we idealize the early church. Like, if we could just go back to the early church. The early church was a mess. It really was, just like most churches, you know why churches are messy? Because you're in it. And I'm in it. And none of us are perfect, right? So I, I think one takeaway from us at this point is, is just this idea um, that setbacks don't necessarily indicate a wrong path. Like, God had called Paul to this, and he's doing it in obedience. He's doing what God has called him to faithfully do. And it's not easy. Like, there are problems, Relational problem, You're, we're gonna find it out in, in this story, but in several stories, he's run out of town and threatened and beaten. And I mean, like, it's a hard path. But if your path is hard, that doesn't mean it's wrong. God might have you on a hard path on purpose. 
And, and the reason why I say that is because sometimes we can pray and we can enter into something and then we face opposition or frustration and we might be tempted to think that like that's a sign from God that like, oh, I must not be doing the, what he wants me to do. And, and that could be true. I do think God sometimes closes doors and he puts things in our way to try to get us on the right path, but not necessarily, right? Sometimes you're on the right path and you're gonna see this from Paul. Like people desert him, he faces opposition, and if anything, all it does is confirm to Paul that he's on the right path. That this is what God wants him to do. So just keep that in mind in your own life. Like setbacks, hardship, frustration, those things are not necessarily clear indicators from heaven that you're going the wrong way. Sometimes it means you're going the right way. And you just got to keep going. Okay? And so that's, that's true for Paul. And then for John, uh, John Mark, this isn't his end. Okay, again, we don't know what caused this rift. Maybe he said something. Maybe he messed up. Maybe he's just homesick and he wanted to go back to his mama. I don't know. Whatever it was, this moment, this one verse, this chapter does not define his whole story. Okay, failure isn't final. A few years later, we'll see John hooks back up with Barnabas and yeah, Paul won't take him, but, John, or, but Barnabas will. And he goes and he spreads the gospel in a whole other part of the world that Paul didn't go to. And then we, we know um, that he and Paul must have eventually kind of worked things out because in 2 Timothy and in Colossians, Paul actually talks about John Mark in, in positive, glowing terms. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he actually asks for John Mark to be sent back to him. Hey, send me John Mark. He was really helpful to me. So they must have patched things up. They must have reconciled and worked through their, their conflict. Um, he becomes the Bishop of Alexandria, which is a really important position in church history. And many scholars, not all, but many scholars believe that this is the John Mark who wrote the book of Mark, the second book of, of Jesus' biography. So this is not the end of his story. Aren't you grateful? <laughs> aren't you grateful that your failures aren't final? And that you can go through a bad chapter or you can have a tough circumstance in your life and that doesn't define all of you, that doesn't define your whole story. Right? God uses imperfect, normal, everyday human beings. I'm glad. <laughs> I, if you went back to my hometown or if there's people watching this in, in southern Ohio, we said it with an A back then, it's close to Kentucky. Uh, and you were like, hey, uh, Mike Klein is my pastor. They'd be like, spit stuff out. They would laugh at you. Mike, can I tell you some stories? And that's when you say, no, no, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, no one saw that coming, okay? I was a mess. Setbacks don't necessarily indicate a wrong path. And, and a chapter of failure doesn't mean that it's final. And, and God uses imperfect, broken people every day. Amen? I'm glad about that. I'm really glad about that. Verse 14, let's keep going. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, which for the Jews is Saturday, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Okay, so we talked about this last week. This is, this is normal. This is what they do. They go to the synagogue, which is where all the Jews would be gathered to worship and to read the word. And uh, Paul being this really well-known trained rabbi would have been invited to say something. He would have been handed the scrolls and said, could you 
you know, explain this to us or could you speak? And so they ask him for a message of exhortation. Okay, that word exhortation can also be translated, maybe your Bible will even say this, can be translated as encouragement. It's the same word. Okay, the people ask Paul and Barnabas for a word of encouragement, which is a good call because Barnabas, if you know, his name literally means son of encouragement. So they're picking the right people to ask, ask this from. But you step back and you go, okay, they, they're asking these traveling speakers to bring a word of encouragement. So what is going on in their context? In first century Judaism, under Roman colonization, <laughs> that makes them discouraged, right? Why do they need a word of encouragement? And it's because of things like lots of political instability, uh, there's a ton of uncertainty about the future of Judaism, of Roman occupation. There's social unrest because the Romans are ruling over them. There's economic frustration because of high taxation and, and, and lots of people are struggling financially. Judaism, the religion, is on the decline, especially with younger generations because now they are in this Greco-Roman society with other gods and idols and they're, ma they're marrying, you know, outside of Judaism and, and there's a lot of fear from the older generation that the younger people are gonna drift away. Any of that sound familiar? Maybe a little bit? So they're feeling the pressure of all of that and they're like, can you bring a word of exhortation or encouragement for us? So Paul's got the floor. He can say whatever he wants. Um, he could start back at his conversion story where this miraculous voice from heaven and he could use that. He could talk about what happened last week. Let me just tell you about this time where God blinded a sorcerer um, for getting in his way. <laughs> he could like scare them into Jesus. You know, you ever try that? Like, I'm gonna make you wanna be a Christian. Um, that doesn't work, does it? Uh, he, could, he could do that, but that's not what he does. Instead, Paul goes back to their story. He goes back to the history of Israel and he traces it. He, he tells the story of Israel in a way that everyone listening in the synagogue would have understood and recognized, but with a conclusion they don't expect. So here it comes, verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, We'll talk about that in a minute. Listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, which is what he's named after, right? This was his, his, his name, Saul, who became Paul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So a couple things. Notice he addresses his fellow Israelites, the Jews, and he says Gentiles who worship God. Well, that's kind of an interesting category of people. 
they were known as God-fearers. That was another label that'll be used here in a little bit, God-fearers. These were people who, uh, they weren't born Jews, right? They didn't have Jewish parents. They were, they were outsiders, so to speak. They weren't fully Israelites. They hadn't converted all the way to the religion of the Jews because of one requirement, circumcision. And as a man, I can understand the hesitancy. Uh, it's like, I'm really into this, but yeah, I don't know about that, right? Uh, so they were still considered Gentiles, but they were really attracted to Judaism. They probably because of the monotheism, right? Judaism was one of the only religions of the day that taught there was only one God. If you know anything about Roman and Greek gods and religion and all that, right? All these different kinds of deities and always playing tricks on the people. I mean, it's kind of a fun to read about, but kind of a weird way to live. And, and so there was an attraction, I think, to the fact, this idea that, no, there's actually one God above all of that. And they saw the beauty and the truth and the ethical teachings and the morality of the Jews, like the way they treated people, the way they lived their life. There was this attraction to Judaism. So they kind of hung out on the fringes of the movement. And they were welcome to come and listen and to learn and they'd hang out near the synagogue, but they weren't fully converted because of circumcision. And Paul, in this one sentence, addresses both the Jews, God's people, and these God-fears, Gentiles who worship God. He says, this is for you too. That's huge. This isn't just for those Jews here in the synagogue. This is for everybody who wants to listen. You're all invited. And then Paul turns up the heat a little bit. Okay, he's traced their history through the biggest characters, you know, Abraham and and, uh, Moses and and Egypt and and David, right? This is the line of, of the Messiah. And then he turns up the heat a little bit. Verse 23, and talking about David. From this man, David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, right? The Messiah. Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, right? John said, I'm not, I'm not the Savior, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Wow. This would have been like a really like light bulb moment. Like right now to us, this is happening in our day. It makes me think of a lot of moments that I've had lately that have kind of just, you know, blown my mind. And the phrase that I've said, I find myself saying over and over again is, what a time to be alive. Right, you ever said that recently? What a time to be alive. Um, so last week I was recording a video, uh, a video that I shot for a district conference coming up and Bryant, the videographer, he, he recorded it and he edited it all night. Then he came over less than 24 hours later, the video was all done and edited and he came and he, he said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the video. I was like, Oh, okay. How, how do we do that? And he comes to the office, he opens his laptop, he clicks on this little thing called airdrop are you familiar with AirDrop? I'm not techie. I'm sitting at the desk. We're 10 feet away, okay? There's no cords connecting our computers. There's no little memory thumb drive thing that he's put it on, and now he's put it on my computer. 
He clicks on AirDrop, a little message pops up on my computer and is like, would you like to accept this file? I'm like, what? How'd you? <laughs> Click on it, boom, now it's on my computer. Like, it's just there. I'm like, what a time to be alive. It's like magic, right? I think about all the things we can automate in our lives, like paying our bills, don't even really, it just kind of happens, the money comes out. Um, filters for my furnace and my refrigerator water filter just show up at my doorstep when they're due to be changed. It's the best thing ever because I always used to forget it, you know, and now it's just like I subscribe and they're here. Uh, you know, listen, you're not impressed by that, I could tell. How about this? William Shatner went to space a few months ago. <laughs> not on TV. Like he got in a rocket that's privately owned and went to space, and while in space, tweeted about it. <laughs> what a time to be alive, right? What is this world? That is Paul here. Like, that would have been the reaction, I think, from this crowd. That, that the promise God made thousands of years before that moment to Abraham, and he traces through all of these people, and all through David, and so Paul says, that promise has now been fulfilled in your lifetime, in your day. It is to us that this message, this Savior, has come. And I read that, and it makes me wonder, what message, what is God doing right now in our day that will never be repeated, that is ours to, to receive and, and run with. Right? I, I know there's a ton of doom and gloom out there. I know that there's just a lot of, man, the world's falling apart and it's terrible. And I mean, it, there's a lot of stuff to be worried about. I won't lie. But do we believe like God's just kind of done? It, like, well, it's kind of tough out there. I think I'm gonna park it for a while. Right? He is doing something right now in our midst, in our lives, in our church, in our community. And I wonder what it is. I wonder what to us has God entrusted and if our eyes are open and our hearts are ready to receive it and do something about it. Because like we are living in a stage in his story that no generation will ever live in again. Like this is our one shot. We get one life to live and this is our day. This is the day that God has put us here. What is he up to? Is it possible that there's something stirring there's something new that he's doing that we're invited into and God wants to reveal in this moment, in our day. I think it could be. I, I, think, I think about the stories of revival that we tell, but oh, back in the day, what if it was our day? I think it could happen. I think it's stirring. I think it is happening if we have the eyes to see it. Not everyone in Paul's day was super excited about this. Um, not everyone received it with such gladness. Verse 27, let's keep going. You with me still? Do we need to pull off and take a little pit stop, get some munchies? <laughs> Bathroom break? All right, back on the road. Here we go, verse 27. That was a quick stop, so ladies, you'd still be in line waiting at the bathroom. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry about that. We better, anyway. Verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. This is still Paul talking about what's, what's happened already, okay? The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. 
when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Don't miss that last nugget there in verse 31. Paul says that there are still people living as he's talking, as he's saying this. There are still eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection alive in their day. And that's significant because if Paul just made this whole thing up, or if this was all just like, you know, lies, they could go and ask. Right? This is Paul basically saying, if you are worried that I'm just kind of throwing you some bunk and this isn't real, just just drive over or walk over, <laughs> sail over, and, and talk to these guys, the ones who have been talking about it. They're still there. They're still alive. I'm not just making this up. Verse 32, we tell you the good news, right? We tell you the gospel. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written, and he's going to quote some old, this is what he does. He, he grabs some Old Testament. He brings it forward. And he says, all this stuff was actually pointing to Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. For as God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors. His body decayed. That's, that's David's story. That's his end. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. That's Jesus' story. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So this in a nutshell, Paul says, is the gospel, which is a word that basically just means good news, right? This is the good news. In the first century, that word was not unique to Jesus and his followers. Uh, gospel was often used in a political context, actually. Should we talk politics for a little while? No. Okay. Uh, good news was like a king, like had conquered a new territory, Right? And they would send a herald to proclaim a gospel, right? a good news to all the people that we had conquered and we had won this battle and this land is ours now. Rome owns this and you know, that is the good news. Paul uses that same word, which Jesus did as well. He grabs that word from the context and he says, no, 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 the good news, the gospel, there has been a battle and that battle has been won. Jesus is victorious, but not over land and stuff and people, Jesus is the victor over sin and death. Good news. Let it go. Let it ring out. Gospel. It's the best news ever. And, and he points out why. He's like, look, the Old Testament can't get you there. Right? They knew the law. They knew the sacrificial system. They knew all of the rules that tried to keep them in line. In fact, they'd add rules to the rules just so they wouldn't get close to the line. Like if here's the line of morality, they would add rules right here just so you wouldn't be tempted to get close. They had all these rules and all these things, but they still would mess up, right? Because they're human. 
and they have a sin nature, just like you and me. And so then they would go to the priest, and they'd offer the sacrifices, and they'd do all of the things. And, and Paul's like, that's just a Band-Aid. We talked about this on Easter, right? That's just a Band-Aid. That can't actually deal with the root cause and the root issue of the heart. Like Hebrews chapter 10, listen to this, Hebrews 10, 1 through 3. The law, right, the Old Testament law, the, all of the 600 plus laws that they had, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality itself. For this reason, it can never, by the sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, this is like a rhetorical question, otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? Right? Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is like, if, if sacrificing an animal could fix the problem, then why did they have to do it over and over? Right? He's just kind of throwing out that question. He says, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But that's not true. He says, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. Every time you brought your goat or your chicken or your cat, they didn't bring cats, but we might. No, I'm just kidding. You lay your hand on that thing, and it's, you know, the goat is killed for you, and it's like, oh, my sin, you know, and forgive me, and you got to come back. In the Old Testament system, you got you to do that, like, all the time, or I offend you. You and I, we get in a fight, and I offend you. We've got to take our sacrifices of our grain and whatever. We've got to go and mediate with the priest and make sure it's good, and I've got to pay you the right amounts and all of these things. The law served a purpose, and it kept them, you know, in line. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Don't forget that. Don't leave here thinking that Paul didn't love the law. Man, he knew the law, and he loved the law. He loved the temple. He loved the rituals and the Jewish culture, all of those things. They were important to him, but he knew in his heart what everybody else knew, and that's that none of that stuff actually took away guilt no amount of animal sacrifices can change a heart. But he says, now something has come that can do that. There is a savior and he has come to us. The promised Messiah that our parents and our grandparents and our great, 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 great grandparents heard about has appeared in our day to us. And Jesus did for them and for you and for me what no goat or chicken can do, <laughs> right? Through his death, he not only forgives our sin, but Paul says, set free from every sin. That's good news. That's the gospel. And then verse 42, right? We're almost done. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, so a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Everybody's heard that. Everybody shows up to hear more. Right? The crowd is like, this is the best news. Like, we can't believe it. We want to hear more. Could you please share with us? I mean, you're the greatest guest speaker in the history of this synagogue. And, and you know, forget those other preachers. Will you come back and share with us next week? You know, and this is why I'm really picky when I'm gone about who gets to preach, you know, because I'm afraid you guys will trade me in for an upgrade and you'll just like, can you come back? Let Mike be gone for another week, you know? 
But who wouldn't be excited about this, right? We can be forgiven, we can be set free, especially God-fearers, because remember who they were and kind of how they were, their position and all this. I mean, imagine if, if, so you're telling me I can be all in, I can worship your God, I can be loved by your God, I can be a child of God, and I don't have to be circumcised? I'm in, let's go, right? Woo, <laughs> where do I sign? So I'm imagining most of this crowd is probably from that group. I mean, there's some Jews in there for sure, but I imagine a lot of God-fearing Gentiles are like, we gotta come back. The reaction is similar to what people said when they heard Jesus speak, by the way. Um, Jesus would teach and preach, and they would say, this man has authority like we've never heard. He teaches in a way that's different than the rabbis of his day, and they were attracted to him. And same thing happening with Paul here. He's, he's speaking the word of God in a way that is just so persuasive and attractive. And part of it is I think he brings them good news. All right, they ask for a word of encouragement, exhortation. Encouragement's attractive. Uh, I mean, is anybody here, are you watching online? I mean, are any of you just so overly encouraged you wish I could knock you down a couple pegs this morning? Like, just make me feel bad, pastor. Um, <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, what culture you're a part of. Encouragement's always attractive. And, I mean, there's a, a time and a place for conviction and hard truth, and Paul won't shy away from that. I mean, even in this section, he said some pretty hard stuff. And not everybody loves what he says, as we're gonna see, but, but like, if you, if you are the guy or the gal that's always doom and gloom, right? You're just always like Eeyore walking around. Don't be shocked when you're not invited back a lot, right? Because it just sucks the life out of a room. It sucks the life out of people. We are hardwired to need encouragement from each other, especially right now. Oh my goodness. And, and I think Christians